So Women Talking, based on a novel by Miriam Taves, which in turn was based on an actual incident in Bolivia, is the story of a group of Mennonite women who, upon realizing that they have been attacked repeatedly in the night and sexually abused while drugged by some of the men of their community, gather mostly in a hayloft for an almost Socratic slash platonic debate about what to do. Stay, stay and fight for equality. Leave and start a new life someplace else. That's almost the whole movie, uh, but it's an amazing, amazing movie. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about The Consultant, a Christoph Waltz series on Amazon. All of that is coming up on the nose right after the news. Sings. The six o'clock alarm would never ring But it rings and I rise Wipe the sleep out of my eyes My shaven razor's cold and it stings Cheer up, sleepy I did warn you yesterday that we were going to play Daydream Believer for very, very different reasons on two consecutive shows. This is the second of those shows. We're not done yet either. We have an actual show about daydreaming, although I think that episode's been pushed back a little bit. But before the end of March, we will have used it three times. Uh, so in this case, Daydream Believer is an odd musical punctuation within uh, a much, I don't know, much more removed from the world movie called Women Talking. Uh, we'll tell you a lot about that in our first segment today on the nose. And in the second segment, we're going to talk about The Consultant, uh, which stars Christoph Waltz uh, and some talented young people. It is a series on, on, excuse me, on Amazon Prime. And when I say we, who do I mean? Well, our uh, nose panel today consists of Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant. She's a consultant. You know what that means? I, I think you're about to find out, uh, for the <laughs> principal consultant for the Narrative Project. She's also co-stars, or has co-starred in the past. She and John Dankowski have co-starred uh, on Mercy and the Dude, an audio production from Putterman Studios. Is there going to be, Mercy, is there a third season of uh, Mercy and the Dude in the works? Do we know yet? There is conversation and speculation about a third season of Mercy and the Dude, yes. Yeah, because I've sent some spec scripts uh, over to Putterman Studios. <laughs> I actually have some. And I also represent the actress Rose Marie, who would like a guest shot on the series. So um, also with us today, Lindsay Lee Wallace uh, writes about culture, health, care, and health equity, and other stuff, too. Uh, relatively new panelists uh, to the nose, uh, but we're very excited whenever she shows up. Bill Usman is also very exciting. He's not a consultant, not to the best of my knowledge anyway, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So that's who's on the panel today. Oh, and I'm supposed to announce that uh, we are also, we are launching in April something called the Newsletter. It's a newsletter about the Colin McEnroe Show. It is not confined 
to issues arising from the nose, but nor will issues arising from the nose be excluded from the nose letter. And they'll be, you know, I don't know what they'll be actually, but if you, <laughs> I'm not really selling this, am I? Uh, but if you think you might like to receive this, uh, you could sign up early. You go to ctpublic.org slash Colin and look for the blue sign up box, I'm being told. If you have a little problem with the CAPTCHA, let me know. I'm at Colin at ctpublic.org. But ctpublic.org slash Colin, and you become eligible for this prize that we're putting together, which I don't, I don't have time to explain today. Anyway, um, so we got to talk about women talking. So uh, before we get going, I'll just say that Women Talking is based on a novel by Miriam Taves. Uh, her novel was based on a real incident which happened in Bolivia when more than 100 members, I think, uh, women within a Mennonite community in Manitoba, Bolivia, there is such a place, and it, there is such a place because of Mennonites, by the way, uh, realized that they had been uh, assaulted and violated uh, sexually in their sleep, that they were being drugged, I think with belladonna, I'm not sure, but they were being drugged with something. Uh, and um, uh, there were pro prosecutions, or at least attempted prosecutions and things like that. Uh, anyway, uh, Taves turned that into a novel somewhere around 2019. I think that came out. Uh, and now we have a movie directed by Sarah Polly with um, kind of a wonderful ensemble cast, including some you know, fairly big name performers, uh, including Claire Foy uh, and the amazing Jesse Buckley, uh, Rooney Mara, uh, and uh, Judith Ivey. Also, some very, very interesting younger performers who are, I think, less well known to us. So, before we get the panel talking about this, uh, let's talk, uh, let's hear a little bit from the movie. This is going to be a one cat. You're going to hear Frances McDormand, who isn't in the movie a lot. Uh, she's Scarface Johns. You'll hear Claire Foy as Salome. Uh, I think that's how they say it. It looks like Salome. But Jesse Buckley uh, as um, – I forget how this was – that name is pronounced, actually. It's not pronounced the way it's spelled either. Judith Ivey as Agatha, Michelle McLeod uh, as um, Majal, and Rooney Mara as Ona. Here we go. The only important thing to establish is if we forgive the men so that we will be allowed to enter the gates of heaven. You can laugh all you like, Salome, but we will be forced to leave the colony if we don't forgive the men. How will the Lord, when he arrives, find the women if we aren't in the colony? Jesus is able to return to life, live for thousands of years, and then drop down to earth from heaven to scoop up his supporters. Surely he'd also be able to locate a few women Let's who left our colony. Let's stay on track. All right, I'll stay on track. I cannot forgive them. I will never forgive them. I, I can't either. We want to enter the kingdom of heaven when we die. We have everything we want here. No. Want less. <laughs> Does entering the kingdom of heaven mean nothing to any of you? Surely there must be something worth living for in this life, not only the next. I think it's coming back to me the, the Jesse Buckley character. I think that name is pronounced Marakay. It's spelled a little bit differently than that. Um, I will just quickly say, uh, I'll get my re religious studies hat on and say, the discussion of forgiveness that you hear uh, there is not a discussion the way we would have a discussion like that. Forgiveness is really, really closely baked into all the Anabaptist traditions, including Mennonites. It would be an idea that they would take very seriously and, and might actually be an exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. So, um, uh, well, I, I just want to have everybody kind of take everybody's temperature. I kind of know where everybody already is here, but but Mercy Quay, why don't you get us going? Just how did the movie land for you? 
Oh, well, <clears throat> I'm not a huge fan of slow-moving movies. Um, you know, there are a number of movies that, that from the uh, uh, Cullen Brothers that I'm just sort of like, yeah, this is moving too slowly for me. But this one, while you know, tell the beautiful story in a hundred, I'm sorry, in an hour and 45 minutes. It took me three hours to watch it because I kept pausing and trying to figure out what was wrong with my TV that I kept getting these sounds of static. And it was just like, oh, that's a, that's a thing that they're doing. And, you know, for me, the piece, beautiful as it was, tried a few things that didn't work out really well. We had, uh, they turned down the saturation on the piece that uh, in a way that, you know, I read I read a piece earlier today and then I completely uh, resonated with in the New York Times. The writer said, uh, turning down the saturation of the piece made an already distant community feel even more so. And I think we have a hard time relating to, we are disoriented as a viewer, um, relating to, you know, a, a sense of time and place in this piece. And they do that beautifully. I think there is a huge spoiler um in that that I, that I think we've all agreed not to mention here but it, it was a beautifully done piece that for me gave it was very much giving uh a Beckett play or the stuck in a space sort of vibe of a Beckett play sort of uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in, in the same sort of sense they're stuck making a decision trying to figure out what's happening next and I think every single actor in this piece beautifully portrayed one stage of grief and stuck to it, right? You had Mary Kay who was portraying anger. You had, um, I believe, uh, uh, Sal Salome, I forget how to pronounce her name, portraying um, uh, negotiation. And there is this way that everyone captured a sense of grief inside of this, the entirety of the scene. Um, the entirety of the piece, and I think it works beautifully in some ways, and I think it falls short in other ways. Yeah, and it's it's interesting watching an ensemble like this. We should say most of the conversations, pretty much all of the conversations, happen in a hayloft um, that becomes kind of like a jury room for this whole thing. Uh, and and yeah, and the and I would say the moods also interchange a little bit. I, I would say on on a net basis, I think Salome actually is the angriest uh, of the the women there and the least eager to negotiate Marikay I think kind of fluctuates a little bit and uh, Ona the character played by by uh, Rooney Mara is the one who um maybe injects a little bit more of a note of calm at times uh, but they're all really angry and quite uh, understandably and there are many more, more characters than that so uh so I want to go to Lindsay next Bill and I are basically just taking minutes right now uh, we have a little place <laughs> a little writing table uh you have to we're gonna the, list all the pros and cons that's right you have to have seen the movie to get the, I, I'll say that Ben Wishaw has the only male role in the movie uh, he plays August a kind of a very mild-mannered uh, um, Mennonite who has apparently washed out as a farmer, according to some of the unkind things said to him by the women. But he's a gentle soul, uh, and he has been asked because, in fact, the women uh, are not literate. Um, uh, part of the way in which they have been kept in their place and and, and kind of denatured and disenfranchised is to, for them not to know how to read and write. Um, I should also say that most the, the, this particular group of Mennonites would probably speak uh, a dialect called Plautdeutsch, which actually isn't written. It has no recognized uh, orthography. But I mean, the men would have all been, you know, fluent in letters, probably in both German and English or whatever. Anyway, Lindsay, uh, tell me a little bit about your immediate reactions to this movie. 
Right. Well, um, not to not to be contrarian um, in terms of August being the only male role, but only because I thought it was really meaningful the way that um, other male characters were included, mostly like the the children of the mm -hmm. community. And then also Melvin, who was a trans man, although I don't know, you know, that that's how he would have described himself in that Mennonite community. But I thought that like the the portrayal of different stages of masculinity or different versions of masculinity as part of this story was part of what gave it nuance. So I guess I just wanted to mention that. That's a, but that's a great point. I absolutely swung and missed on that. You're absolutely correct. Oh, thank you. Um, and But I agree with Mercy about I generally experience um, when I'm watching something that's slow or something that is mostly conversation, just like so much trouble paying attention. And I didn't feel that way when I was watching this. I felt really engaged with it. Um, although I also was troubleshooting a technical issue. So maybe that was part of it as well. Maybe that's part of the experience for everyone. But um, I, I, in terms of the color grading, I had heard so much about it being really um, cool and desaturated before I ever saw it. So I think I had just built it up in my head as being more significant than it was so that when I did see it, it kind of didn't strike me as being significantly, like looking that different from from other things that I've seen. Um, and I, I thought sort of that speaking to what Mercy was saying about the portrayal of grief, I thought that the colors kind of reflected like my own personal experience with grief, the way that it kind of mutes the world. So in that regard, I thought it was kind of effective, but I definitely get the the point of like, it sort of distances you further from an already distant feeling situation. So I, I see both sides of that, but on the whole, I thought it was really effective and I really appreciated how simple it was, even though that's something that normally maybe keeps me from being engaged, it kept me engaged. And I felt like all of the the viewpoints that were raised by the different women, even the ones that I found infuriating, um, felt like they were treated with a lot of compassion and patience and care, not just by the characters, but by the narrative. And as a result of that, it felt like a conversation that was like really sweepingly applicable and like addressed a lot of viewpoints that get raised in our society when we talk about assault. So I thought that that was really effective. I was really moved by it. I think also, uh, could I just uh, stay with you for a second, Lindsay, and say one thing I'm thinking a lot about today is there's a way in which responses to the movie have kind of mirrored the, what you just said, the way in which the women respond and the women have yeah. different, very, very different ideas uh, about what has happened and what should happen and what would be the best thing to happen. Uh, and they sometimes even kind of switch their positions a little bit as we go along. But, yeah, it's very much uh, um, a movie about women with differing views of a situation. And I just, you know, uh, I think uh, Bill sent us this Mary Gateskill piece from, from a, a newsletter uh, where she didn't like the movie, she explained why. She had some interesting reasons for not liking it. Uh, I've I heard uh, Dana Stevens, the uh, vaunted uh, Slate film critic, say that she thought this was a better Me Too movie uh, than Tar, but she thought Tar was a better movie. Um, I, I just think you know a, a lot of people are going to have. It's, it's just unreasonable to expect everybody to kind of come down on this, and it really does kind of nicely reflect some of the 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 qualities of the movie itself. So, so Bill, you and I really. Are not expected to have too many opinions about all this, and and although and and but I want you to anyway. But even before we get to the opinion, you know, they've both both of our our fellow panelists have talked a little bit about sort of light and darkness and the, some of the visual qualities of the movie. I was actually struck by the almost Bergman like 
use of light. Mm. There's mm-hmm. there's often light on faces when there's not light anywhere else. Um, and, and I I actually was just riveted by the look of this movie. I was riveted by everything about mm-hmm. it. But but it was kind of interesting because we've been complaining a lot on the news about how dark scenes are. And I don't mind scenes being dark in movies and television, but I want light on the face. And and, and they she did it. Sarah Polly and her DP, whoever that is, did it just so marvelously that it's just a great looking movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in my role of just listing out the pros and cons, uh, there are very, for me, there are very, very few cons about this film. Um, it grabbed me from the opening minutes and it never let me go. Um, and I also agree that uh, the visual makeup of it, I found extremely compelling and sort of the washed out color palette it it didn't bother me um because i felt like it really reflected something about the um the desolation of their lives and how cut off they were from being able to experience a full spectrum palette of color in the world um and so that 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 worked for me. The 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 soundtrack I think is just fabulous in terms of also kind of conveying what's happening in the film. I will say that I think the film requires a certain amount even though it is based on on real events. I think it as a film it requires a certain um type of suspension of disbelief in in a few ways. And one of them is I found the dialogue extremely powerful. Um, a couple people, you know, uh, Mercy started out by saying how it reminded her of like a Beckett play. It very much could be uh, a stage play. Um, and it is very much about their conversation. The title of it reflects that. Um, I found the dialogue extremely compelling, but, and Mary Gateskill does point this out it is a stretch to think that uh, a community of people who were illiterate by design would be talking in in this particular way the the abstract kind of philosophical discourse that that they were having but i think accepting it as a work of imagination which it explicitly says at the beginning what follows is an act of female imagination makes that for me not really a problem you just kind of give yourself over to how the film is presenting the situations in these women's lives yeah although i i do want to say i mean i had the same thought watching the movie but i was also thinking i don't i don't know that we know that women who are smart able alert people um, but who have been systematically deprived uh, of the ability to read and write, wouldn't be able to think abstractly, wouldn't be able to embrace verbal or linguistic idi- no. idioms, uh, yeah. wouldn't be able to express themselves in nuanced and sophisticated ways. I think that might be a little bit of Taves's, and Taves would know. I should say uh, Miriam Taves, who wrote mm-hmm. this novel, uh, grew up Mennonite. Uh, I mean, the name Taves is kind of Mennonite the way O'Brien is Irish or Usman is Jewish. You would just sort of, if you were a Mennonite and you met somebody named Taves, you would know that they were brought that up that way. She would know. And and I, I do feel as though 
part of the point is, yes, you've tried to kill certain things about these women's minds, but you haven't made them stupid or inarticulate or, you know, you, go ahead. No, I, I agree with that. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really not saying, and I don't think Gateskill was saying in that piece that they'd be incapable of, of thinking and articulating their situation, but, but, and certainly their religious, uh, community would have allowed, would have fostered, you know, philosophical thinking in that way. But, ju but just in terms of the actual language, you know, the, the actual words that were being used, it does, it did felt very much to me like a scripted, you know, kind of dialogue, but I, but I still think that it, it pulls that off extremely well. Right. They in real life might not, Enough not yeah, go ahead. Enough that there are a few lines here that are just so quotable. I think, you know, yes, um, lots and lots, they, yes. lots and lots of incredibly quotable lines. I will stay with me for a really long time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the apology that Ona um, executes, you know, if you, if you are at all someone who studies the anatomy of an apology, you are someone that understands she took two swings before she got it right. And <clears throat> hmm. when she was, when she was uh, apologizing to uh, Mary Kay's character, I believe. Um, and, you know, Mary Kay calls her a unwed mother and a whore. Um, it, it, Ona's char the character Ona has this moment where she sits back and says, I didn't mean to say anything that offended you. And then is struck back down with the anger of Mary Kay. But then Ona comes back a second time and says, no, I am apologizing because I know that the words I use have hurt you, right? Earlier in the film, Ona's character has another quotable moment where she says, so, or maybe this wasn't uh, this wasn't Ona. Um, correct me if you remember who exactly it was, but it, 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 it questions the idea that everyone involved is a victim in the moment, right? Are the boys as much victims as the women who they uh, abused because the system encourages it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that when we think of Me Too films, they kind of slap us over the head with this idea that men are bad. And you know what? If I were to take a bell hooks approach to consuming mm -hmm. this content, maybe I would say come out saying men are bad. But I think this one says this one for at least a moment takes an opportunity to to suggest that there's a system here that the boys mm -hmm. have fallen into, that the women have fallen victim to, but ultimately at the end of the day, everyone is a victim. All right. Uh, before we go further, just to uh, emphasize the point that everybody's making here, we're going to play A3 Cat. You're going to hear uh, Jesse Buckley as Mary Kay, Rooney Mara as Ona, Kate Hallett as a young woman named Ocha, uh, uh, Claire Foy as Salome, and Judith Ivey as Agatha. All right. This is A3. We cannot leave. We will. It would be better to stay and fight than leave. Do you really mean that you want to stay and not fight? Because when was the last time you had the strength to stand up to the aggression of Klaus, to protect your children or to Who get out of harm's way? You! To tell me what kind of wife and mother to be when you are neither one yourself. You are a spinster, a whore, an unwed mother. Stop. Ono was made unconscious and raped like the rest of us. How dare you call her a whore? Ricky, are you not afraid that your own sweet boys will become monsters like their father because you do nothing to protect Stop them? Stop it! Nothing to educate them, nothing to teach them the horror of their father's I ways. I have heard enough. 
you women realize we are talking about leaving. We are a large group. Many things could go wrong, and time is fleeting. For the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and precious Savior, shut your pie holes, please. <laughs> so, uh, shut your pie holes, by the way, is a very common Mennonite term. Uh, it's uh, right there, I think, in their liturgy. So, um, so, Lindsay, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about this, first of all, I didn't consider it a slow movie. Yes, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of talking. Uh, Pants, uh, our producer, compared it to 12 Angry Men, which I thought you know, is very, very interesting, both very, very true and very, very not true in a lot of ways. But, um, but it's one possible thing- I just have one of those Gen Z TikTok attention spans then. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, no judgment. Um, that judgment comes later from uh, the Lord. So, um, no, what, one, of the th- <laughs> one of the things that I was going to say, though, was I-, I liked the fact that it wasn't tonally all the same. You know, they, this is also true in the novel. They laugh, they get angry, they sing, mm-hmm. they befriend one another. The younger women are just doing things that younger and somewhat bored people sometimes do. You know, Lizzie, one of the things I loved about this was it was it was really women talking in the sense that it wasn't just a jury trying to you know, convict or acquit. Yeah, I mean, going off of that and then also what Mercy was saying about the apology, like, yes, it's women talking, literally, they're having a conversation, but it also is like these snapshots of the dynamics between different women, like the dynamics between older and younger women and mothers and daughters and women who are married and have families and women who aren't married and have families. And a lot of that is really relatable, you know, even though this is like an extremely specific community in an extremely specific circumstance, it felt like it unfolded in a way that I saw a lot of like myself and other women in my life in. Oh, no, absolutely. So I I, want to just bring up like the existence and presence of the, so I will revise my earlier statement and say the only character, the only male character with a lot of lines and a lot of screen time is still Ben Wishaw uh, as August. And, and so I, I don't know, Mercy, I'll start with you. I don't know how, how helpful was he, how, how good a character is he for that role? How does he fit into your understanding uh, of the movie? Well, I think he was an excellent character for this role. And I, I think that there's something mysterious about him. And I am probably not alone in the thought that at some point I swore he was going to come out and confess that he w- w- he too was an attacker. I um, thought yeah. Yeah, and... Um, you know, I think there's this way where they, it doesn't matter, right? For the, for the viewer, we're suspended in, in this mystery of August. We learn a little bit about him. We learn that he is, uh, deferential to the women in the space and he wants to be deferential to them. He wants the best for them. But at the same time, you know, he is shot down a number of times when he's sharing his uh, his his meager thoughts, something that Lindsay and I will spare each of you on in this call. I think that there is this <laughs> <laughs> and careful. I'm still deciding. But I think there's this way that as a character, he he gives us an example of, a, of what men in the face of, you know, um, um, immense uh, tragedy facing um, the women that he loves um what what a man what men can do what role a man can play as an advocate as a supporter as a as a bystander without actually being someone who has the responsibility of change himself right i i i think i heard julia turner 
on Slate, the Culture Gap Fest. That's this is what it looks like when a man listens, um, and and I think that is very much his role. I don't know if there's any other performances people want to talk about. And Bill, I'm an enormous fan of Clara Foy. I've loved her since she was Anne mm-hmm. Boleyn and Wolf Hall, and obviously the young Elizabeth uh, on The Crown, Jesse Buckley, who at times is kind of a Carolyn Payne lookalike. I've just loved her. I, I think I saw her in a movie. I think it's called Wild Rose, where she's a Scottish country and Western singer. Uh, fell in love with her then, and and just have just been enamored of her the entire time. I was actually knocked out by Rooney Mara, who I may be not such a big fan of, and the kind of stillness that she brings to that Ona role uh, was just remarkable. But I don't know, Bill, is there anything you want to say about the the acting and all this, or whatever you want to say? Well, I don't want to pull a Sarah Palin and just say all of them, yeah. but um, <laughs> I, it, for me, it really was all of them. It's a, it's a tremendously acted ensemble piece. Um, And one of the things that I said to you all in our emails was, I just fell in love with these characters. I just loved all of them so much. They made me care about them so much that, you know, it's, it's like my heart was in my mouth throughout the entire watching of it. And it's, and it was because of, the the performances and the way they brought these words to life and and the way they looked at each other um and just just the 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 interactions the 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 humanness of all of them i think it was a wonderfully cast wonderfully performed um ensemble piece it they all just stood out for me like as just there's not a single one that I could point to as like a weak link or anything. They were they were just tremendous. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And so we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon. I should quickly say this is one of the 10 picture, 10 nominees for Best Picture in the Oscars. Um, and Sarah Polly is up for Best Adapted Screenplay. She is not up for Best Director, which I think a lot of people see as kind of an, inj- an injustice. Um, I, for me, this is, I think, made the movie that I love the most of, of all of the nominees. I think I've seen all the nominees now and, and maybe of everything I saw in 2022. But so, Lindsay, I don't know. How about you? Where does this sort of fit in for you? I mean, what what level of excitement do you have about it compared to sort of the rest of the, the field from 2022? Um, I mean, I think that I well, the rest of the field from 2022, my favorite maybe my favorite movie for the rest of my life, although I don't know if that's, you know, hopefully many more movies will delight me, is still everything everywhere all at once, but that's a completely different story. Although is it because it's also about, you know, the intergenerational trauma between women, which I think is like goes to what you were saying earlier about there's no like one way to tell any story that is going to resonate with everyone or perfectly capture it. Um, And I think in the email thread, I can't remember who brought it up, but somebody brought up the movie She Said, um, which is, you know, the other like, movie tackling me too of this year that um I would agree with the person who made this point and again I'm sorry I don't remember who it was it might have been that, pants it might have been pants actually I'm not sure yeah yes um but that the women talking is much more effective than she said at like providing I don't know like a holistic view of opinions about this issue and I think that like more so than looking at it against the field of the other 2022 movies I sort of look at it as like if we're going to do issue movies, if we're going to talk about like a single film encompassing an entire issue, it is one of the most effective examples of that I've seen. Um, Although it definitely still leaves out a lot of perspectives and nuance. It's definitely, I would say like shoulders and above head and shoulders above, she said in that capacity. And one that I would definitely be like, wow, maybe I should 
watch this movie with some of the men in my life to start a conversation, which is always impressive when I see something like that. All right. So uh, the movie is Women Talking. It is actually still out in theaters. You can see it at Real Artways up here in Hartford right now. Or you can rent it relatively inexpensively through Amazon Prime. Speaking of the Amazon Prime, we're going to be talking about another uh, series. But first, I need everyone <laughs> to go and get me some Thai, <laughs> thai food. And then we will come back here at 3 a.m. Uh, and discuss the consultant. Yes. Oh, wow. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So it is time to talk about the consultant. Uh, it stars Christoph Waltz uh, as uh, as a, this is a surprise. So what a character as a very villainous, creepy, scary person, um, <laughs> and uh, he is a consultant who is brought in to run a tech company. It's actually a, sort of a, a company that makes games, especially for your phone. Uh, this is not a spoiler. It happens like in the first thirty seconds. The proprietor, the founder of the company, is actually. Uh, killed while children are on a tour of the facility uh, and someone has to come in and pick up the pieces <laughs> and there are quite uh, a lot of literal pieces in, in this series uh, and uh, it turns out to be him and so uh, we have kind of a young you know kind of millennial Gen Z workforce epitomized by Nat Wolf as Craig and Brittany O'Grady as Elaine uh, and we have this kind of creepy guy uh, who is doing God knows what to them uh, and so we'll just play a little bit of a clip this is B1 uh, and then we'll have the panel discuss it we don't have quite as much time as we did for uh, women talking that was in intentional Mr. Sang Wu please isn't available is there someone else I can Direct you. Oh, that's right. He killed those children and then turned the gun on himself. I didn't get your name. Regis Patoff. Mr. Patoff, he actually didn't kill any children. Some children killed him, or one child shot him. It was a psychotic break caused by... They don't know what caused it. We don't know what caused it. Uh, you're right. I told myself that other version, and it sounded so incredible, it must have stuck in my mind. I'm sorry, sir. Can I just ask, where do you think you're going? To work. 
My contract isn't starting until the morning, but it sets a very good example to be the first one to arrive. What did Singh hire you to do, Mr. Patov? Patov, is that uh, Russian? It's Crimean Peninsula. I am to consult Mr. Singh on all matters of business. Specifically corporate structure, productivity, branding. On all matters of business. All right. So, uh, as I say, we don't have a huge amount of time. Uh, the Amazon synopsis calls this a twisted comedic thriller series, uh, which is perhaps both of it, with its virtue and possibly its downfall. Uh, let's hear about that. Um, so, uh, Lindsay, why don't you get us going on this? Um, yeah, I mean, so I didn't think it was scary. And again, I don't know if that's just because I'm like horribly desensitized because I'm always watching like Hereditary, which, by the way, also stars Nat Wolf, who I would be remiss not to mention was a member of the Naked Brothers Band. So just need to get that out there. But I didn't think that it was particularly scary. I didn't think that it was particularly funny. Um, I, when it started, felt like there was a lot of momentum and I was really interested to see where it was going to go. And then I held out that hope for a really long time that the last episode was going to like crescendo. And instead, I felt like it kind of fizzled out. Um, It more seemed like it just kind of collected a whole bunch of different feelings that people have about the way that work is right now between like older and younger guards in the corporate arena and um, inclusivity in the workplace and dynamics between men and women and sort of just was like, I don't know, what do you think of all this without necessarily making any kind of cohesive statement about any of it? Um, which, you know, I wouldn't have needed to have it be that cohesive had it been particularly scary or particularly funny, but it also wasn't either of those things. So, yeah, I thought it was okay. <laughs> all right. Not the blurb they were looking for, uh, but maybe they'll take it. Bill Usman, uh, how about you? Just kind of give us your take. Everything that Lindsay just said. <laughs> I'm going to be August now. Uh, no, I, I mean, that's that's all absolutely right. It's It's okay. You know, um, at first I kind of liked it. It lost steam for me uh, as it went on. I don't think it's sustained, even though, you know, it's only eight half hour episodes. And, you know, McNichol pointed out, and I think he's right about this. It's, you know, the the half hour episodes is one of the things that actually made it okay. If they had made it much longer than that, it kind of might have really really bogged down um it just i i think you said this colin and and lindsay just mentioned it um it it's neither scary nor particularly funny and so you know what you the the word you use colin was pick a lane and i think you're right about that you and i have differed sometimes about how tolerant we are about the serial comic and I've been saying, no, 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 it's okay. In this case, I, I don't think that worked all that great. There are some great moments. There are some intriguing things that happen, but kind of like, you know, an, an empty kind of meal at the end of the day where like it tastes good going down and then you're like, oh, why, why did I eat all that junk food? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel as though, a, a you know, a scarier series could have been made that probably still would not have 
entirely satisfied Lindsay, but would have probably scared me because I'm easy to scare. Uh, and I also could have laughed a lot more than I did at this. Uh, I will say one thing about the half hour thing, particularly as you're getting older, it's sort of like it solves the bedtime problem. You know, like, do I have to <laughs> pause this in the middle of the episode and then tomorrow night try to figure out what the hell was happening when I hit the pause button or back it up? Or no, no, you can actually wait to the end. Of, it's not going to take that long, no matter where you are in the episode. You can see the whole thing and then you can go to bed. So, Mercy, uh, you're going to probably going to wind up having the last word about the consultant. So feel free to stretch. Ooh, so make it good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll start by commenting on the length again. I think it is sitcom length, but it's not funny. I think that it is supposed to be, it's billed as a workplace satire, but it's not long enough. Each episode is not long enough to actually get into that. I don't think it's satirical whatsoever. Um, I think that, I am enjoying all that said, I'm still enjoying it. I think that it's, it's kind of, it's, it is what would happen in Silicon Valley if uh, a maniac took over and they decided to take a, a really, really sharp left turn. <laughs> if? I think, <laughs> if. If a maniac took over. Jeez, I can't really think of anything in Silicon Valley right now that isn't being run by a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did so think about Musk Valley, a lot. But not funny. <laughs> what, watching Regis Padoff, I did think about Musk several times. Oh, absolutely. I think that there are these moments where, you know, we all thought of, we all are brought into the question of, have I had a boss this bad before? Have I worked at a place that yes. was this threatening before? Yes. And, then the que- and then it's said. <laughs> <laughs> and then- <laughs> And it, it it makes us crawl into our our the 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 crevices of our couch trying to find some some respite from our realities. <laughs> and the re and the reality of it all is it's so so fantastical and out there that we truly haven't had something. You know, I mean, in, call your respective HR departments if you have, but we truly haven't had something that is as menacing <laughs> as Regis Padoff. Um, at, at a number of times throughout the uh, throughout the piece, I was thinking, you know, why why hasn't anyone taken it upon themselves to call the cops? Maybe this is too easy. <laughs> maybe this maybe you wouldn't get to eight episodes if you just called the cops. But I'm the sort of person that calling the cops makes sense if if you're if you know if you're seeing the the circumstances turn around in the exact way that they are. Call the cops. Yeah, then, yeah, then say, I definitely go ahead. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, go ahead, Lindsay. Well, just I feel like there were lots of moments where it didn't make sense. Like they just the Craig and Elaine just switched places between being the person who was like, eh, it seems fine. Like inexplicably, just because somebody needed to prevent something from being done, either one of them at any given moment was like, I don't know. He seems okay. I guess he watered my orchid. And it's like, I why are we not more concerned about all of this? I would be really freaked out. (laughs) But yeah, I guess that's why I, oh, absolutely. I, as the as the kind of the old person here who's worked on a lot of places, I am completely familiar with that habituation to the psychosis of the CEO or the consultant who's running things. It's kind of like okay, yeah. or, I'll, or I'll, in our politics, or yeah, it's like okay, I'll find a way to work with that thing he just did, but that was really horrible. Uh, I I have worked for at least one person who could match the Christoph Waltz character step for step. Um, all right, we better take and a break. And it's right that now. every single thing that happens makes it every single crazy thing. That that happens makes the next crazy thing more believable. Right. So it's called The Consultant. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. 30-minute episodes, similar to Mercy and the Dude, but Mercy and the Dude is like way funnier um, than this. So take your pick. Oh, like an angel. 
talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise, or yes you are. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Yes, uh, time to say thank you to Cat Pastor, our wonderful technical producer. Jonathan McPants is pretty much always the producer of the nose. We wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, time for our panel to make some endorsements. And Mercy Quay, why don't you get us going? What are astronauts and telescopes doing these days that make you happy? Oh, my goodness. Everything, everything. Okay, so, but there's two pieces. One is a, a film from uh, 21 and another is a film from just this past year. Or actually, maybe this, yeah, just this past year. One is a Chris Pratt film called The Tomorrow War, and the other is a Tom Cruise flick uh, called The Edge of Tomorrow. They have the same exact premise and take and take different um, <clears throat> routes of, to get there. Uh, it, the premise is aliens come from out of space, or we're here, but global warming has made it more possible for them to, re, uh, you know, uh, wreak havoc all over the planet. And in The Tomorrow War. Folks from tomorrow come back to today to enlist people into tomorrow. It doesn't make sense. Just watch it. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. All right. That's my favorite kind of endorsement. Yeah. In the in the spirit of women talking, I would like to recategorize <laughs> the Edge of Tomorrow as a Tom Cruise Emily Blunt movie. Um, so, um, uh, Lindsay, uh, what have you got to recommend to us? Um, the first thing is um, the book The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar by Mark H. Harris and Robin R. Means Coleman, which is a like history of black horror and black people in horror movies um, that like goes all the way up to the present day. And in addition to just being really interesting, it has like it's broken up by like delightful little like here's a little listicle. Here's a lot of pictures, which, again, speaks really well to my rotted Gen Z attention span. So um really fun book and then the movie force majeure which is i that mm. title is in a language that i don't speak and it's by ruben ostland which whose name is in a language i don't speak but he did triangle of sadness and it's about this swedish family who goes to a ski resort and then the father runs away from the family when it appears that they're all going to be killed by an avalanche and then it's the fallout of their realizing that he would have abandoned them and it is in mostly Swedish, but it's really, really funny and sad, and I really, really enjoyed it. So everyone should enjoy that. All right. So I, I would co-endorse that and do not accept the Will Ferrell uh, substitute. Um, so um, I'll just quickly, Bill is going to go last for reasons that will become apparent. I'm going to kind of re-endorse something and just say that The Last of Us, which we did a, a, a big episode of The News uh, about, 
You know, it's sort of grown some more since then. We've gotten just to see some more. Last week's uh, episode was just a remarkable kind of total episode flashback, almost total episode flashback that takes place in uh, the ruins of a mall. I think it's like Copley Plaza or something in Boston. But there's just really interesting things going on in this uh, series, and it's it's so much more than, than it might have been. It's so exceeded the limitations of being either a zombie movie, an apocalypse movie, or an adaptation of, of a video game. It's so much more than those things. And if you want to have a lot of fun while you're watching it, I would recommend uh, listening to The Watch. Uh, they usually do a recap on you know, like either Monday or early Tuesday, and the recaps are really funny. All right, so Bill Usman, you have the floor. Talk up to a little bit of music, then we want to go out with some of that music too. So I spent the morning flipping back and forth between the very haunting soundtrack of Women Talking and then listening to the music of Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter passed away yesterday at the age of 89. I think we can overuse the term giant, but not in the case of Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter was a giant in American music, uh, a jazz saxophonist and a composer. He first appeared with Art Blakey's great jazz messengers and then really, really made a splash with Miles Davis's second great quintet along with Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony, Tony Williams. And then he became one of the co-founders of a jazz fusion band, Weather Report. And so, you know, his career spanned all kinds of subgenres of, of jazz. He was right there at the beginning with Bop, and then he helped to, to create fusion. He appeared on those early Miles Davis electric uh, recordings. And he also played with rock musicians like Carlos Santana and Joni Mitchell and Steely Dan. And he's known not just as a saxophonist, but also as a composer. Um, many of his compositions are very well known in the jazz world and has, you know, he's won all kinds of critical praise. Really, really deserved. A, a, a real giant in, in the field. And you know, one of those people who even at 89, we kind of think that's too soon. So Wayne Shorter will be greatly, greatly missed. And I think we're going out on one of his many, many wonderful tracks called Footprints. Before we go to Footprints, I just want to say, um, I had the thought as we were talking about women talking, that there's a way in which women talking is like jazz in the sense that the the players are listening to one another and, and mm -hmm. reacting to one another. And the way that I, so I've come to understand, you know, a jazz sextet might be doing that kind of thing. There's something about the the, the chorus of women's voices responding to one another that, that kind of works a little bit like jazz. All right, let's go out with a little bit of Wayne Shorter. Thank you. 